0: Can I eat my way to having enough melatonin? One molecule of melatonin can scavenge up to 10 reactive oxygen species. Even its metabolites are antioxidants. It's potent. It's very, very potent.
1: Hey there, welcome to the biohacker babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition.
2: What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and check movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life.
1: Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to
2: not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 178 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Renee and I am tuning in with
2: my co-host Lauren today. How's it going? Hi, Renee. I love your coral shirt. I feel very plain today, and in my white, and my, my whole background is white. Hey, for our our very interesting color episode. Yes,
1: Coming but we be... learned about the importance of white today as well. Yes, yes, we did. So we're gonna be we're talking gonna be... a lot about
2: color, Clean color, feeling <laughs> color.
1: <laughs> that was my motivation behind picking out this shirt today, my coral shirt out of my closet. Yes, we have an amazing guest for you today. We have Dr. Deanna Minnick. And oh my goodness, I just love her work. I've actually been following her for at least a decade now. I think I came across her work when I was getting my master's in nutrition. I just really appreciated her approach to nutrition, all about color and diversity and how this supports not just the gut microbiome, but really every aspect of overall health and mental health. And so color is not Um, just about the polyphenols and the antioxidants, which are really important as well, but um, how that influences our mood. So she has this great food and mood tracker that she talks about in the show. Um, I definitely recommend you go online, check that out. I think she is very motivating for all of us to include more colors and more foods into our diet. And one thing she said about this study where they found that people that were eating 30 plus diverse foods in a week I mean, it's just like exponential benefits. So I challenge you all to go and sit down and start marking how many diverse foods you're having in a week and see if you can up it every week. So it's a good mm. challenge. And I think a lot of benefit will come from that.
2: Oh my gosh. Yes, I love all of her color stuff. And it really just took me back to the days when I was super obsessed with the chakra color system and being inspired and pulled and understanding like why we crave or are attracted to certain colors. But then the second half of this episode, which we've really barely scratched the surface. So we're excited to have her back. And hopefully multiple times, we talked about melatonin, which is really fascinating because I think people started putting melatonin on supplement shelves. And at first, you know, people were really excited. Oh, this is going to help with sleep. And then all of a sudden, the biohacking and nutrition industry started demonizing it. Everyone was like, you know, that's a hormone. We shouldn't be taking it. And so there's just been this really massive debate about whether or not we should be taking melatonin. And of course the answer is it is a nuanced approach, right? And she really goes into the, uh, the personalization of it, what melatonin is and what it's doing in the body, how it exists in nature. So even though we're just scratching the surface with this conversation, I think it's a good place to start to kind of reset our conditioned beliefs about melatonin and its purpose in our lives. So if you're interested about melatonin, for one, she is a wealth of resources and you can scroll down to the show notes to learn more, but send us your questions because I know I'm super fascinated about this. And I think there's just so many ins and outs of how do we begin to dose it for ourselves? Like how much, what form, when during the year, of course, like jet lag shift work is a little bit of an obvious one, but I just think there's a a high amount of confusion around that. So she is really shedding some light no pun intended, light and dark. (laughs)
1: Um, I'm thinking of our good friend, Molly Eastman, how she's always like, we need a PR agent for fill in the blank. I think we need a new PR agent for melatonin. It is no longer a sleep supplement. There's just so Mm -hmm. much more sleep is just a small piece of it. So yeah. Awesome. All right. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. So Deanna Minnick is a certified functional medicine practitioner a nutrition scientist, international lecturer, teacher, and author with over 20 years of experience in academia and in the food and dietary supplement industries. Throughout the years, she's been active as a functional medicine clinician in clinical trials and in her own practice called Food and Spirit, which has now become oriented towards groups, workshops, and retreats. She is the author of six books on wellness topics four book chapters, and 50 scientific publications. Her academic background is in nutrition science, including a master of science degree in human nutrition and dietetics from the University of Illinois at Chicago, and a doctorate PhD in medical sciences from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. For a decade, she was part of the research team led by the father of functional medicine, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, and has served on the Nutrition Advisory Board for the Institute of Functional Medicine, as well as on the board of directors for the American Nutrition Association. She is so passionate about helping others to live well using therapeutic lifestyle changes that impact their physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health.
2: She has quite the background. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Can't wait any longer. Let's dive in.
1: All right. Welcome to the Biohacker Babes. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Great to be here with both of you. And nice to have met briefly this past weekend in Las Vegas.
1: Yes, I'm so glad I got to meet you for a quick second. So, for those listening, I did have the pleasure of hearing Dr. Deanna Minnick speak at the American Academy of Anti Aging Medicine Conference. Yes, that's a mouthful Um, (laughs) over the weekend in Vegas. And I got to hear you speak twice um, once more about prebiotics and the gut and polyphenols, and then also about melatonin. So, we're going to try and do a quick overview of all of that today. But to kick it off, let's talk more about color and how that relates to the importance of diversity in the diet. Yes.
0: I I spoke a lot about (laughs) diversity in one of those talks. Um, so uh, when if I look back at my trajectory in nutrition, I've been focused on phytochemicals for a long time, since my graduate school days when I was studying carotenoids. And carotenoids are the plant pigments that usually confer a color like red, orange, and yellow, and even a little bit green uh, to, to plant foods. So I got interested in those. And then um, as I started to open my eyes to all of the phytochemicals, realizing that It's a large category. In fact, it's an underserved category in nutrition. You know, most times in nutrition, we focus on what I call the three musketeers, which would be protein, carbohydrate, and fat. And we stay there. We don't, well, you know, sometimes we move into vitamins and minerals But we don't get into phytonutrients or phytochemicals. You know, those two terms are synonymous. So that's really what I have dedicated a lot of my graduate work to. And then even my my work now looking at a lot of these different plant compounds and what they're doing. So these plant compounds, many of them have color assigned to them. Not all of them, but many of them are associated with some kind of color presentation in the food. So one of my articles published in the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism, I talk about the science of eating a rainbow. Why red foods? Why orange foods? Why yellow, green, blue, purple? And we can go through each color because one of the things that I have seen just more of my scientific eye is that there's a pattern. It's not to say that nature works in tight boxes of Okay, this is red, therefore it's for this. But there is a little bit of an association that I can see between, for example, red colored foods and quelling inflammation or even helping with the immune response. Many of the polyphenols happen to be red in color, like cranberries, pomegranate. So as I was looking into these colors, you know, a scientist is trained to look at patterns. And one of the things that I was seeing is that the colors, Seem to be connected to their function. So that's how I got into color and then talking about eating a rainbow because most people, you know, they're coming at food from all different angles. (laughs) They're coming at it from calories. Food is energy or food is information. I want it to impact my genome or, you know, food is connection. I feel a connection to my body and to my community when I eat. And I felt like the unifying factor of all different portals into eating really became this rainbow concept of eating the rainbow. So a lot of my programs, books, and education are all centered around that aspect of color.
2: I love, love that. that connectivity yeah. thought because you're right. A lot of people are focused on either just the calories or the macronutrients. And even when we focus on the macros, people are still not talking about, okay, when I eat this much protein relative to carbs fat, how do I feel? No one's thinking about that. They're just like, did I nail my percentages and and my you know, total grams, but that that element of how do I feel? So I'm curious with the colors. Is there any intuitive sense on how we should be guided to choose these foods? Is there a seasonal uh, component? How do we begin to look at color? Do we just go like for gold and and get as much color on our plate as possible? How would you what's the entry point there?
0: Yeah, short answer is yes, to get that rainbow throughout the year. But that rainbow is going to change throughout the year as well. For example, as we move into autumn, Uh, one of the things that we start to see is more polyphenols, actually, in nature. We start to see more purple grapes. We start to see more red berries. And so nature informs us through these colors. But I would say even throughout the year to go with getting the rainbow and the variety of the rainbow. It's not just eating tomatoes to fulfill your red, but seasonally. And I'm really glad that you brought the seasonal aspect into it because, The season will give us the colors within that plant spectrum that we most need physiologically. And as far Mm -hmm. as connecting, uh, I think what you were getting into there a little bit is how we feel. You know, there's a food and mood connection. All of the colors are important because they're each priming different body systems. But I would say if I had to choose one, I would say that the blue-purple category is especially important for mental health. That there are studies looking at blueberries, concord grape juice, uh, these purple compounds that are in these, these plant foods that come out very periodically throughout the year because blue-purple foods are not very common. And that's why I've I often said purple is precious. When you see it in nature, grab it. And, you know, I live in the uh-huh. Pacific Northwest, so we need to see purple cauliflower, purple broccoli, purple Brussels sprouts, purple carrots. We get to see purple varieties when they're in season. So I always say to people, I know that they're a little bit more expensive. They look a little bit more small, but they're actually, you get more for your money. They're more nutrient dense. So yes, Mm. I would say there is a food mood connection, very much so. And in fact, there's one graph I showed in one of my talks showing how life satisfaction increases with the number of servings of vegetables and fruits, actually. So the that's more amazing. that we take in, <laughs> the happier the more content we will be. So that's pretty promising. It's not just that yeah. these foods are reducing the risk for chronic disease, they're actually helping us to feel better.
1: Yeah, and and I've heard you say this before. I think that's so important. Like I think us biohackers and those of us that are interested in nutrition, like we want to do everything we can to prevent chronic disease, but for some people that's not super motivating. It's yeah. how do I feel today in the now? And so it is really cool to see that connection. And you have created this beautiful food and mood tracker. Can you share a little bit about that with the audience?
0: Yeah. um, You know, one of the best ways for us to learn about food is to use ourselves as an experiment, which is why I like the whole biohacking platform. Because the N of one, you know, we can learn so much about ourselves. And we know ourselves better than anybody. You know, even going to a practitioner and, you know, the only way for them to really know us is follow us around and to get inside our head, to know our bodies. But we know that the best. So one of the things that I did was I created a one-page sheet that I call the Food and Mood Tracker so that people could see the connection between the colors of their foods. So from the, you know, just looking at the spectrum of foods, they would just check off when they would have a color and then the colors of their moods. So if they were feeling red and more reactive or angry, you know, each of the colors designation on the sheet. So people can follow that or they can make up their own designation of those colors. But what people tend to see when they use that is like, oh, when I didn't get any colors, I kind of felt these types of emotions or I had these kinds of moods. Or when I was eating more of these colors, I had less of these kinds of moods. So unless you actually put them side by side and deliberately track them, it's really difficult to say that you are experiencing that. There are studies to show that even having ultra-processed foods, meaning that you're eating foods that aren't really food, they're really (laughs) compilations of ingredients, that those kinds of processed foods have more of an association with a detrimental impact on mood. And then we also know that eating closer to the Mediterranean diet, which is lots of fresh foods, colorful foods, greater adherence to the Mediterranean diet is associated Better markers of mood. So sometimes it's not even a certain color. It's just getting those colors. Because you know, when I think of an ultra-processed diet, I think of a lot of brown, yellow, and white foods. I think of bland l- lackluster. And that kind of parallels the feeling that people might have when they eat those foods. Mm-hmm. I love the mood component. I'm thinking of
2: the mood rings that we used to wear in the <laughs> 90s, and I think they're you know, used to. Even older
0: than that. <laughs> well, I do have my aura which is not a, exactly a mood ring, but- does Modern help. day yeah, look, mood look ring, us. it really <laughs> is. Yeah,
2: and also going back to when you said purple is precious, I immediately was like, oh, what about like the chakra system? Because there's colors mm-hmm. there. And you said purple, which is crown chakra at the top. And maybe that's a little out there and woo-woo for some people, but I'm assuming there's like an energetic component to well, uh, as well for the mood stuff.
0: You know, I think that, you know, what are chakras? Um, they are places where we have a lot of energy in the body and they were recognized in yoga. And ancient medicine systems, and I just think you know, chakra in Sanskrit means spinning wheel. It just means a lot of activity. So if we translate and just say, okay, within the Western lens, what are these chakras in the body? Well, they are the endocrine system. And I'm glad that you do see that because you know the the ancient traditional medicine systems and even philosophical ways of thinking, they were on to certain things. They just didn't have the same language that now. So now we have the language of okay, pineal gland, pituitary gland, thyroid gland, the heart, the pancreas, the ovaries, the testes, the adrenals. Yeah, this is a major endocrine superhighway. And I know we're going to talk about melatonin, which is connected to the pineal gland specifically. So yeah, there Mm -hmm. is an, you know, we can call it energy, or we can just even call it what it is, which is endocrinology, you know, this entire endocrine circuit within the body. I would think that eventually, you know, I do like the whole biohacking thing. I like technology and I would hope that one day we get a sense of taking our phones, you know, our smartphones, we put our finger up to the the camera or to the light. We get a sense of a readout of many different aspects of our being. Or we even scan food that has a certain maybe antioxidant potential. You know, what I was talking about at the conference is that we are now learning that there are microorganisms on food, like an apple. An apple is loaded with microorganisms, like a hundred million. So what if we scan in the store? We know what our gut microbiome is, we know what our skin microbiome is, and we're looking for certain microorganisms, and we start to scan for the appropriate effects that we want. I think we're gonna get there. And I know that some people feel like, oh, that's so far removed from nature. You know, I think we have to embrace the intuition. As well as the information, you know, really looking at the science and the art of it. And I do, I I feel like there's a lot of potential for all these just understanding ourselves better at that physiological and psychological aspect.
2: Oh, yeah. I agree. I think we can too easily just rely on the data, but we have to remind ourselves why the data is there. It's to to come back to ourselves and connect it and keep asking why and understand the root and the foundation of it. So I, I love that point. I think both can be really valuable.
0: And you know, for many people, you made an excellent point there because for many people staying on track often means that they use the data to do that. They become more well-informed. For other people, it scares them. They have a Mm. lot of fear around the data. So I think that depending on the kind of person you are, I love the numbers. Like I wake up, I look at my aura ring readout. It's like, okay, where am I at? How was my readiness score? How did I sleep? I mean, I kind of know, but it's kind of interesting to match up what you know and what you experience in your mind versus what the data is saying. And it's like, okay, well, I thought I slept better than I actually, I guess, did. Maybe I ate too, Yeah, cl- you know, and you start having that conversation with yourself. Yeah, oh, I'm yeah,
1: you are speaking our language right now. Absolutely. I mean, the, te- <laughs> the technology is here to stay and it's it's only going to be exponential at this point. And there was a lot of discussion over the weekend as well with like where technology is going to be in, in 10 years from now with healthcare. And I think we yeah. can we can leverage it to optimize our health for sure. But I think always that intuition, like that red cherry, what is that saying to you? Just like looking at it, but then maybe you measure it as well. And how do you combine the the two.
0: Right. So like, like if you're yeah. just, just, to, uh, you, you just gave me an idea. Like if we are drawn to something, maybe there's like, we use our intuition to take us there. And then when we measure it, it's like, Oh yeah, I'm drawn to that cherry because it contains this phytonutrient profile. Yeah, you know, we can really, I, I think we can bring, it doesn't have to be, or it can be, um, a both and conversation between them, just depending on what our proclivities are and what we actually like.
2: Yeah. Are you seeing that, that people maybe are craving blue, purple foods, like berries, because they need more of it? I'm sure it can't be reduced to just something simple as that. But
1: Hey, biohackers. Did you know the use of silver actually has a long history and has been used by many ancient civilizations as a means to not only maintain health, but to preserve food and beverages. Before the mainstream discovery and acceptance of antibiotics in the early 1900s, silver was used in hospitals and is actually still used today.
2: Silver has generally gotten a really bad reputation. Maybe you've heard the scary claims from the blue man that took too much silver. Well, quantity and especially quality really matter here. So, most silver supplementation on the market is ionic silver, and it is unsafe for the body if used in high quantities. This is why we really love Silver Soul technology. It's not ionic, and it's a true colloidal silver, which is a nanoparticle coated by a silver oxide. What you really need to remember is that it's more effective, more efficient at lower parts per million. Silver Soul Technology is 10 to 33 parts per million, where other companies have up to 3,000 parts per million. The takeaway? More is not better.
1: Yeah, and Silver Biotics actually has a range of products, but we especially love their immune-specific line. The Silver Soul Technology has a natural way of targeting invaders without the side effects. This uses multiple modes of action on how it actually targets invaders, and it uses the natural elements to kind of trick the body, so to speak, and then it kickstarts the immune system.
2: Yes, I love these natural defenses. So it actually came to the rescue to me the other day. I was feeling a little run down, and at the end of my luteal phase, so for my ladies, that is when we are the most vulnerable. So I took a few doses, and a day later, I was Feeling pretty brand new. I was just so grateful that I had this stuff on hand. And guess what? I'm still not blue. I can confirm that she is not blue. (laughs) And either
1: am I. And I've had a similar experience. It really kind of saved the day for me. And on top of the Immune Line, we have some other products from them that we love their skincare, like their Healing Skin Cream, the Anti Aging Facial Serum. And then their oral care, the whitening toothpaste is amazing. I call myself a toothpaste snob. I have tried all the natural ones. And usually when they're really clean toothpaste, they don't work well. But this one is incredible.
2: You know what? I think my teeth are turning blue. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) that's what the whitening toothpaste is for actually i love the toothpaste too we get sent a lot of different brands of toothpaste to try and i have to say never usually a fan but this one is a clear winner in my book i'm definitely going to continue it
1: and to wrap things up they also have the wound care product and they have pet care products for all the animal lovers out there like lauren and i meow (laughs) (laughs) surprised you didn't woof
2: woof (laughs) (laughs)
1: So if you want to check out the products from Silver Biotics, you can head over to SilverBiotics.com and make sure you use discount code BiohackerBabes at checkout to save some money. We will put the link to their website and the discount code in the show notes for today's episode.
0: All right, let's get back to the show. Not always. You know, not everybody is is that in tune, I must say. You know, sometimes (laughs) Mm -hmm. the technologies are... (laughs) (laughs) They're just like, oh, I'm craving (laughs) chocolate or, you know, it's more... And many times it's looked at as a negative thing, like when you crave something, right? Sure. Um, but I do think that now one of the the cases where I did see people were waking up more to their intuitive body sense of what they needed was after they had been on an elimination diet for twenty one to twenty eight days. So in my whole detox book, I do this thing with color. Like the first three days is all red foods. Days four through six is orange, and as they go through that process, you start to tap in, like even about the color about how certain colors speak to you. Like I have my wardrobe arranged in the rainbow and every morning I literally do this. If I'm not traveling, I will go into my closet and feel out like what, like today I knew I was going to be busy doing lots of speaking. So I'm like, I need my aquamarine. I'm going to wear my aquamarine. (laughs) So, so I I do think the more that we wake up to food and more, the more that we wake up to our body and to our body's needs that It's across the board. It it doesn't just become a food conversation. It becomes a life conversation.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was drawn to this shirt in my closet this morning. I don't know why.
0: (laughs) I just like, I was like scanning
1: the colors and I was like, ooh, I'm just feeling that color today. So (laughs) (laughs) apparently I'm a blank
2: canvas today. Just
0: (laughs) potential. Well, and I just posted on my Instagram this morning about the pineal gland, which is connected to the color white, at least in the way that I see it. Through my operating system, so you know, through this color-coded system that I call the seven systems. So the pineal gland. When I think of that, I think of white, and then I think of white embodying the entire prism. You know, so when Uh. we have white light going through the prism, we see this the entire spectrum of colors. So um, yeah, white. Interesting, because I think pineal gland darkness, but white,
2: I guess, is the the lens by (laughs) through which we see anything.
0: You know, I, I think it's a conduit to so many things. It's a conduit to consciousness. It's a connector to time and chronos and who we are and as spiritual beings in this physical reality. I think it's a connector to the sun, the moon. You know, it, it's, I see it as a, a bit of a consciousness con- conductor, quite honestly. You know, the mm. pituitary is a little bit different. I see that as the seat of intuition. You know, it informs so much of the other endocrine circuitry so it's like the all knowing all seeing but it's body bound whereas pineal is it's more outside the body bringing that outside into the body to inform our circadian system i love them all Ooh. like i mean e- all the colors have great teaching and i would say even for the listeners to think about the colors that you're drawn to and to think about the colors that you're repulsed by colors that you you don't Ooh. have an affinity to cuz those are just as important as the colors that you're drawn to. That's what I have found just in my own huh. survey of people. Interesting. Is there an
2: oversimplification of what that means when you don't want the color?
0: Well, I'll give you an example. Like one of the colors that seems um, that, that people are not as drawn to wearing, but they're drawn to seeing is yellow. So yellow is considered a very happy color. Uh, but some people are they are, they're kind of they withdraw from the color yellow, they may have too much yellow in their lives, meaning like burnout. You know, if yellow is the fire element and I coincide it with the digestive tract, some people have had too many yellow foods, you know, breads, pastas, cakes, cookies, crackers, chips. I mean, look at all these foods. They're yellow. They Mm -hmm. are um, easily broken down for energy. We get this huge burst of fire to fuel us, but then we get depleted and we get on that cycle. So to me, yellow symbolically portrays the fire element. And sometimes we have a little bit too much fire and sometimes we need Mm. good, healthy yellow in the way of like joy, happiness and contentment. The other color that people have a repulsion to either they really love it or they really don't like it. And I just know this from surveying people over the years is red. Some people are like, Oh, it's too much. It's like scary. Oh, it's um,
2: really <laughs> I will not put red on my body. No,
1: oh, I love much. red. I wear you a lo- lot of red. Oh,
0: interesting. And then other people are like, no, it's passionate. It's um, and you know what's interesting is I often look at the colors. Okay, so so many times if I'm consulting with people, I'll look at okay, what is their inner stuff that they're working on, and many times it comes out through their bodies. So I re- I there's a pattern of working with people with inflammation and then having them wear a lot of red. And in in fact, it wasn't even me that came into that sense. I went to a dermatologist many years ago and um, I guess I was wearing a red blouse. And the dermatologist said to me, he said, you know, I see so many people with red skin inflammations that wear red and to see me. I never thought about it before, but to think that this This older man who had been in practice all these years had mentioned to me, like, why did he just mention to me? I didn't mention anything about my work with color. So from that point on, I began to look at, is there a pattern between people who have maybe autoimmune conditions, inflammation? Are they wearing red? Uh, Are they bringing red out? Because there's so much red inside, so it's like bringing it out. And what would happen if they wore blue to cool it down? So kind of experimenting, because, you know, color is psychological and it's physiological. If we're talking through food, it can be physiological, obviously. And then it's psychological just even having it in our environment, certain mm-hmm. colors.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always think back to the the funny legend of uh, like a football team painting the opposing team's locker room like baby pink or something, um, saying that that gets into their their psyche of not going out and being maybe that aggressive team that they want to be.
0: Actually, I think that there's something to that. There was something I saw about red. And when teams wear red, it does kind of rile up more of that. You know, if you look in the literature, red is associated with aggression, more anger, more reactivity, but it's also associated with passion. And it's mm. also associated with inflammation. So it's like it kind of get us it gets us going. That's why, you know, you probably have heard like if you go to an interview, wear the red power suit, right? You get attention. Right. You, you become memorable. You look actionable. You just look that way. So, you know, yeah, I, I think a lot cool. of those things they're 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 we're now starting to see some of the science catching up with them. You know, for each of yeah. the the respective color, and don't forget, um, every color has its own spectrum. So even blue, you know, blue is, um, you know, they all do, but you know, or even green. If you think of like a pale green, uh, lime green, grass green, I mean, just go and look at all of the paints at the store, and you can see, like, wow, there's no end to green. And you might like some mm-hmm. of them, and you might not like others. So it's it's interesting life. Everything's a spectrum,
2: right? It is. (laughs) Yeah. Very well said. Absolutely. I think the color is so fascinating. I, there was a period of my life where I was like really kind of obsessed with the color chakra system. And I was painting my room wherever I lived at the time based on the color that I was like super attracted to. And I just remembered in this conversation that I had a room that was red. I was like really into this cherry mm -hmm. red I don't really remember what was happening physically at the time, but I knew energetically I was really drawn to it. Anyways, you just reminded me. I feel like I have some journaling to do today to figure that's out great. why I wanted the red at that point. There's another period where it was like turquoise blue. And at that time, I had a lot of throat issues, communication issues. And I feel like it was kind of uh-huh. nourishing that aspect. But I, I just feel like that's an endless discovery possibility for a lot of us.
0: That's wonderful. I'm glad that you can see the connection between the two and to really have fun with that, because that's where I started to learn about the chakra system was in yoga. I went to my first yoga class when I was 19. And ever since then, I was like, oh my gosh, something, you know how you just feel, sometimes you can feel information like that feels true. And Mm -hmm. it was like a remembering for me. And then all of a sudden I'm starting to see colors in a different way. And it really tuned some some dial within me and um, brought, be- brought that back. So it's good that you did that because we can use colors to provoke certain things. They can also be kind of subconscious where they might be trying to get through a message. You might be dreaming in a certain color. You might be attracted to wearing a certain color. You know certain people go through color phases even artists. I mean Picasso went through his rose phase, his blue phase, right? So we may right, have right. phases of our lives where we like certain colors and I think people have a constitutional color like some people just always like the same color. Like that's just who they are. And then then we have a conditional color. Those are colors that just kind of pop in we might like them just more on a temporary basis where it's like, oh, we're drawn to that, you know, like that beautiful color that you have on Renee, like whether it's like a coral color, but it just feels maybe temporary. Then you move on to kind of your steady eddy colors. So anyway, it's yeah. just an endless discussion to talk about color.
1: Oh Truly. yeah. I'm definitely going to be looking at colors much differently today after we Hang up. Nice. Um, So tying it back to eating a diverse rainbow rich diet, are you then seeing that translate into a lot of diversity in the gut microbiome?
0: Yes. Yeah. There are so many reasons. So here's the thing. Many people are in food ruts. If you think, Mm. uh, especially breakfast, breakfast is probably one of the worst food ruts for people because they wake up, they don't have a lot of time, uh, or at least they don't spend a lot of time on breakfast. So it's the same old, same old. They just kind of wake up with, you know, ready to eat cereal or a quick uh, scrambled egg or toast or, you know, and again, it's a lot of brown, yellow, and white foods. So breakfast, which I think should have really the most amount of diversity because we wake up and we don't have food in us and we're ready to go. So having diversity is important. And most people, you know, they're circulating between five to seven different recipes per week. They usually default to the same foods. They go to the same stores. They buy the same things just because it's like they don't have the mental bandwidth to kind of think out of that box. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we know from the literature is that the American Gut Project, which has been surveying, you know, this is more of a citizen science kind of project, right? Where they take the, the gut microbiome samples or looking at what people are eating. And in one of their reports, they were saying how having more than 30 diverse foods per week led to greater short-chain fatty acid production. And short-chain fatty acids are pretty fantastic for the gut, right? So they help with the brush border integrity. They help with the overall signaling from the gut to the rest of the system. They help the gut microorganism populations. And overall, Short chain fatty acids are pretty remarkable. You know, typically we think of acetate, propionate, and butyrate. So when people are having at least 30, and I think it was compared to less than 10, so having the, the 30 or more was significant. And then there was another paper that came out, and this was by Dr. Miguel torribio Mateas, who's in the UK. And he had published saying 55-0 foods in seven days, unique foods. So that means you could have an apple, like a Fuji apple, that would count as one of the 50. And then the next day, if you had a Granny Smith apple, that could count as number two. But if you had two Fuji apples, that would not count as one and two. But if you had a different variety within a certain class of foods, that would count. Because you get different phytochemicals, and that's really what you're aiming towards. So yes, the short answer to your question is we are changing the gut microbiome, when we eat more diverse foods. Nature has a principle of diversity, you know, diversity of people, diversity of situations, neuronal plasticity, diverse experiences help us, new ways to work in the morning. Diverse experiences help us with heart rate variability and diverse foods help us with gut flexibility as well. And in fact, uh, as you probably saw at the conference, I showed a slide with it's not just the gut microbiome that benefits from dietary diversity. There's a laundry list. You know, there's there are associations with better nutrient status, lower toxin load, better mood, associations with less risk for fractures or falls. I mean, it's it's pronounced all of the things on dietary diversity. And yeah. we're just not getting a lot. We're, if you look at even the species that we're exposed to from a plant perspective. You know, uh, ancestrally, we might have had, and this was a an estimated number, something on the order of 3,000 different species. And now we have that whittled down to about 100 to 400. The average person, mm. when they go to the grocery store, they probably see, you know, depending on the market that they go to, maybe 25 to 50, depending on, you know, do they go to a farmer's store, they might have more exposure, they're eating more seasonal produce, or they're just having the garden variety of what you find in your mainstream supermarket. So over yeah. time, we've just been exposed to less diversity. People are not choosing as much diversity, but it's a really big deal. Even if they can't change their food per se, the, the types of foods, even if they just brought in like one new food every week or just something that they haven't eaten in a while, you know, just to change it up mm-hmm. even a little bit, that could have a, a significant impact.
2: That is so interesting because you would think now in a time when food is available, unfortunately, 24-7, we have access to grocery stores and delivery and restaurants and snacks. Mm -hmm. And there's just always availability that the diversity would go down. But I think you're right. Like people don't have the bandwidth to choose something different. And I talk to my clients about this a lot, just choose something a little bit different. I'm so glad you mentioned even just the small microbe change from a Fuji apple to a Granny Smith. Because, you know, you tell someone to eat something different, they're like, I don't know what to eat. You know, this works for me and -hmm. they want to keep going down the path of this works for me and we're missing out on that adaptation. And that's like how the human species has survived through adaptation. So I think that's really important. Also, another challenge I see is from a glucose perspective, people are afraid to eat the rainbow because a lot of times that means starch with like your orange vegetables or Even the purples and the blues through berries, people are afraid to eat fruit because they say it's going to spike my glucose. But you're saying the microbiome effect, I think, trumps that, correct?
1: What's up, biohackers? Renee here. If you are a biohacker who's looking for the newest cutting-edge products to push your brain and body to the outer limits of what's possible, or maybe you're a wellness enthusiast who's looking for a mental upgrade, well, then stop what you're doing. You have to check out Newtopia. It's the most powerful nootropic company on the market today. These nootropic stacks are taking the industry by storm because they're safe, legal, and highly effective. You see, every stack was formulated by a man who's the most advanced brain chemist and nootropics formulator alive today. Uh, We actually had him on the podcast in August of last year. We call him Mr. Newts, and it was a great episode. We took a deep dive, so definitely check that one out. And even better, every formula is customized for you based on your strengths, your weaknesses, and your goals. So you get exactly what you personally need. And it's true that Elon Musk's Neuralink is still a long way off, but Newtopia Stacks might be the next best thing. So taking the right formulas at the right times can help you focus intensely, block out distractions, reduce stress and anxiety, enhance your creativity. I personally love these, especially on days where I have a lot of podcasts or writing, or even if I'm going out on the weekend and I just want to have a little boost in energy so I can connect with others. There are just so many great uses for me, and I just love it so much. But you'll be amazed how quickly they work. I mean, really within 15 to 30 minutes, you'll start to feel the difference um, and you'll start to notice those mental effects. And guess what? Here's the best part these formulas come with a full one year guarantee. So there's zero risk to you if you want to just try them out and see how it goes. So here's the deal. If you feel like you're not fully maximizing your potential, this could be personally and professionally, then you owe it to yourself to at least try Newtopia's formulas. They're, I promise you, a total game changer. All you have to do is head over to newtopia.com slash biohackerbabes and use code biohackerbabes at checkout. That'll get you 10% off your order. And that's Newtopia, N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A. So newtopia.com slash biohackerbabes. I will put that link in the show notes for today's episode as well. So it's easy for you to find. And we can't wait to hear your experience
0: with these awesome nootropic stacks. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, and also what we know about blood glucose response is uh, actually a couple of things um, that I think are relevant. Number one is that everybody has a different blood glucose response to foods. And we know that the gut microbiome is changing that response of blood glucose to a food. So sometimes it's even gut microbiome related. Uh, secondly, there is a cephalic phase of eating where if we feel the stress of we're going to eat something that could increase blood sugar, or if we have a stressful event, we can be creating changes in blood sugar. We can be creating changes in even gut permeability. Mm -hmm. So there, and there is a way to hack having, um, something that's higher glycemic. Let's just say you have, uh, a mandarin you know, a mandarin orange, right? So many people think, oh my gosh, that's too much sugar. But if you have that together in the context of a meal, or if you have, people are always asking me about juice um, because there is literature on juice. There is literature on Concord grape juice. There's literature on pomegranate juice, orange juice. And it's almost like, you know, how do I tell people that juice is a bad thing? Um, Because there's some good data on it. So I think one of the things we have to remember is to bring that juice, as you probably mentioned, to your population of clients to have it within the context of a mixed meal, right? Because that is, then we have the sum of the glycemic load of the meal rather than just having that particular food. Yeah. Or waking
2: up and starting your day with juice. Probably not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like coffee. I mean, you wouldn't want to just have coffee and nothing else or juice and nothing else. You would want to be sure that you have a mixed, mixed meal. Again, diversity that helps Mm -hmm. prime. And and some people think like, what about food combining? I'm like food combining. I mean, we were made, I mean, our guts are very sophisticated and the more that we, you know, I do think that we have to think about people that have digestive issues and staging things like just simplified meals to kind of get their digestion going, but then to rev it and to continue, it's like a muscle, you know, that gut microbiome wants that diversity, right? Then you get a a more diverse milieu of organisms. So all in all, I think um, it's important for the gut. And if it's important for the gut, it means it's important for blood sugar. It's important for insulin. It's important for cortisol response.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciated that you talked a lot about the anti-nutrients too, because I think that's the other reason people are afraid to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables because the the oxalates and all these issues. But it's like when you do have this diverse gut microbiome, it doesn't seem to be as big of a problem for people.
0: That's what I would say. Uh, So anti-nutrients, just to define them, they are perceived compounds that And plant foods that are thought to interfere with the absorption or the digestion of things like vitamins or minerals. So, case in point would be tannins in tea. So, tannins uh, are polyphenols, but too much in the way of tannins in the presence of an iron rich meal could lead to the binding of that iron and prevent it from being more absorbed. Now, for some people, that might actually be a good thing. They may Mm. not want Mm. iron. For people who are iron deficient and are anemic, then they may want to have that cup of tea about an hour away from a meal, as an example. So there are certain ways to circumvent that because I don't want us to avoid tannins because they're precious polyphenols. I mean, if we just think of a cup of tea, A cup of tea contains so many phytochemicals. And if you look at populations that have longevity, like centenarians, noninarians, people that are living into their 90s and 100s, typically they punctuate their day by having some kind of beverage that is phytochemical rich. Coffee Mm. is phytochemical rich a diverse blend of teas. This is where one of the ways uh, people could get diversity is by having different kinds of teas, not just the same green tea, maybe the Sencha, maybe the Genmai Cha, maybe, you know, all different kinds that would give you different phytochemicals in the long run. That's a great tip. Definitely.
1: Drink more tea. inclusionist. Drink more tea and let it
0: steep. Uh, You know, make the tea very bitter because when tea is bitter like that, that represents the catechin component of tea. And the catechins are another segment of polyphenols that do the gut very good, can be helpful with metabolism. We know of the benefits of green tea. And one of the ways to preserve catechins in the green tea is to squeeze just a little bit of lemon. Those bioflavonoids can create synergy together with the catechins and help their activity in the body a little bit more.
1: Ooh. <laughs> love it. That's, a great, that's a great biohack. You both, you
0: both did that at the same time. I think Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love like lemon so in my
1: tea, so that makes perfect sense. So on the realm of gut health, something that you've also shared this weekend, melatonin, that most of it is produced in the gut. And I think that will blow many minds listening right now. Cause we've always hear, heard about the pineal gland and it's all about the brain, but tell us more about that melatonin in the gut. What can we do yeah. for that?
0: So melatonin is everywhere in nature. It's in plants, it's in animals, it's in our bodies. And even within our bodies, there is different, uh, I would say there's a spectrum of melatonin. So the type of melatonin that is produced by the pineal gland during darkness, and you're right to say about darkness, right? You know, typically we see the highest production of melatonin at about 2 a.m. So when it's very dark, So we start that dim light melatonin onset at, you know, typically two to three hours before bedtime as it starts to get a little bit into dusk. We already start to produce some, but that peaks at that that apex of darkness. So at about that 2 a.m. mark. And that is produced in the pineal gland, which is being informed from the retina to signal the brain in order to have the pineal gland produce that for the body to entrain circadian rhythm throughout the body. So that's the pineal gland-derived melatonin, very specific. Now, separate from that, and that's very time-driven, separate from that, we have melatonin produced in so many other parts of the body. It's almost like what parts of the body do not produce melatonin? The gut. Um is really the leader here. And the gut produces 400 times the melatonin than the pineal gland produces. The only thing is that the gut is not primed to light. It's a different kind of melatonin-generated signal. So many times what we see with the gut is that we see higher amounts produced after a meal. So postprandial amounts of melatonin that are increased. And what we see from the literature of uh, Dr. Wirtman and others who have really formed that body of literature over time, most likely a lot of that is being used locally. We find melatonin in the gut lumen, right? In, in the actual cylinder, right? That, that the gut is. Then we also find it within the mucosa, the cells of the gut. Then we find it in the muscle layer of the gut. So it's thought that melatonin is helpful for digestive secretions, for the motility. So it makes sense that we would have higher melatonin after a meal because we want to prime those secretions. We want to keep the gut moving. And uh, just for your listeners to remember this, um, this is a very basic flow, but the amino acids, so amino acids are the building blocks of protein and tryptophan Is one of those amino acids. Tryptophan converts into serotonin. Serotonin converts into melatonin. So if we're having a high protein meal, we've got eggs, we've got turkey, we've got, you know, uh, even vegetable sources of protein, 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 protein. I think protein is essential for metabolic detoxification, but also as the precursors to a lot of these neurotransmitters and even hormones. So what happens is we're driving. That melatonin synthesis, just even through dietary components. Now, if we think, can I eat my way to having enough melatonin? That's pretty different. And the reason why is because the amount that's in foods tends to be in nanograms, picograms. This is like really small amounts. So you'd have to eat like 1,500 tart cherries to get that level, like even a a modest physiologic dose of melatonin of like 0.3 milligrams. So it would take a lot. It's not to say that it's not important just because it's small. We don't know the ramifications, right? It's not just like we have to be melatonin centric. That food has so many different things. And so it's stimulating or changing gut function in some particular way, but it's different than the pineal gland melatonin. Um, That's what we see, and I, I look forward to more studies where we understand. Well, what's the crosstalk? Are we changing the pi- the pineal gland is pretty, you know, it's it's uh, in the brain. It's in a very tight, you know, we've got the blood brain barrier. Now, one of the things that is unique about melatonin, though, is that it can cross the blood brain barrier. Hmm. So yeah, there
2: could I'm be very some interested. Talk
0: between gut about- and brain. There actually could.
2: Yeah, I. Yeah. I- want to know so much more about that, but I'm just curious quickly, your opinion on eating more carbohydrate rich foods in the evening to like overcome that amino acid balance. Like you said, with the tryptophan, you didn't say in uh correlation to the aminos, but I think that's what's happening. It allows when we have the abundance of the carbohydrates to cross the barrier. Is that true?
0: You know, that was some of the early work from, uh, Dr. The, the two doctors. And yes, looking at that carbohydrate tryptophan ratio, because those amino acids compete with each other, just like minerals compete with each other. So if we can lessen the load of competition with the amino acids and have more carbohydrate with certain sources of tryptophan in order to allow the tryptophan to then cross, then the pinealocytes, which are responsible for that conversion, Maybe better optimized. So that might be one way to see it. Now, endogenously, our body is is using that to, yes, make melatonin. But then over time, as we become older, we become either, whether it's less efficient or less able to make that conversion, and our levels start to go down pretty significantly in the fifties, like at about mid fifties. And then as we move into the sixties and seventies, it really starts to bottom out. So many people mm-hmm. have started to be thinking about melatonin supplementation, you know, what dose, you know, when do I take it? You know, all of those questions There are so many different um, aspects to supplementation. So I'm so sure everyone's should... wondering. <laughs> yeah. I know we, should,
1: <laughs> we start wrapping up. Oh my gosh. Um, I- I'm sure most people are like, okay, so if I am above the age of fifties, so per se, um, should I supplement with melatonin? And if so, what kind of melatonin? Because then there's yep. synthetic, there's plant-based or plant-sourced.
0: Oh, you you know that. See, most people don't even know that most melatonin is actually synthetic. Um, I learned so from first, you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I have concerns about that because in that synthetic chemical process, we're using lots of different solvents, substrates in order to create the melatonin. And you know just want to be sure that our melatonin is pure so back to your question how do i know if i need to supplement first and foremost uh, to honor that everybody has very individualized kinetics bodies different needs you first have to ask what would i be taking melatonin for is it because i'm 55 and i'm aging and you know i want to watch out for my immune system i know that melatonin is a great antioxidant it's anti-inflammatory it's a chronobiotic it helps my mitochondria yeah so maybe I should start taking some at least at a, you know, a a lower physiologic dose, like 0.3 milligrams per day at night and, or at least replenish levels. Right. So Mm -hmm. there could be that just like an overall, like let's rebalance the need state. Now that's just a general point. That's not specific to anybody for people who are doing shift work. So let's say that, you're a nurse. You're a doctor. You're working in a hospital. You know, we just got back from Vegas, and I was thinking of all those people working in the casino with all that artificial light. You know, at two in the morning, I had to leave for the airport at like four thirty in the morning, and I walk downstairs, and all the lights are on. It's like it's daytime. And it's I'm scary. About, I was thinking about all those casino workers and how they have this shift work distortion, right? That's not uh, what our pineal gland is is used to physiologically. So I think about all those people with shift work where they're working during the night as if it's daytime, those people need support, right? Because Hmm. not getting the pineal gland to produce what it needs. So those people would need some kind of support. Jet lag where circadian rhythm is off. You know, you travel more than three time zones. Uh, You know, you travel from the United States over to Europe. You definitely want to reprogram the circadian rhythm just, you know, acutely. That's not something that's a longer term thing, but like once you're there, you take a higher dose, like three milligrams. Some people like up to like five or six milligrams for those first three days that you're there on site in the new location. So there's that. And then some people, this is more in the biohacker space. And again, you have to do this under the purview of a practitioner. They use it more for, Aging aspects. Looking at mitochondrial health. Some people are looking at it in the way of looking at risk for cancer because we know that that melatonin is so potent. You know, one, count, one molecule of melatonin can scavenge up to ten reactive oxygen species. Even its metabolites are antioxidants. It's potent. It's very, very potent. So I think what's happening is that people are learning. Oh wow, the mitochondria sequesters all that melatonin which is important because that's where a lot of the aging occurs. That's where a lot of the oxidative bursts and metabolic fire is happening, right? So it's very appropriate that melatonin would be collecting there. So um, some people are using much higher doses therapeutically to help with things like chemotherapy, making chemotherapy work better. You can look at Dr. Lasoni's work. So a lot of creative uses. In the paper we wrote, We talked about its use in migraines. There was just an article that came out on heartburn, helping with reducing risk of stroke, cardiometabolic disease, fertility issues, reproductive issues. I mean, if you understand Hmm. the mechanisms of melatonin, nothing would be off the table, quite honestly. And we know that during the pandemic, one of the things that it became looked at was for COVID-19, and now it's even being looked at for long-haul COVID, So that's kind of when I became much more like, I was thinking, why is melatonin being discussed with vitamin C, zinc, and vitamin D? It's almost like, you know, vitamin D, signal of light, and then we have melatonin, signal of darkness, that these two work hand in hand together, at least as the the LARC regulators. And we can go into what kind, because you had also asked that. Yeah. yeah.
2: I'm not sure we could even scratch the surface on the breadth of your wisdom around this topic, but <laughs> it's fun. just curious to cycle back to the production being lowered as we age. It sounds like it's just very powerful on its effects on the mitochondria, I guess, from an oxidation and inflammation standpoint. So is that the reason for the stores being depleted over time? And if Obviously these specific situations shift workers or for people that just aren't honoring their circadian rhythm, are they really depleting their stores? And if we do honor our circadian rhythm, do we have a better chance of maintaining
0: natural production throughout our life? I feel like I'm in the casino yeah. where you know you hit the jackpot it's like yes, 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 yes to everything you just said the thinking, while you do it the cherries are coming down <laughs> yes, yes, yes um. So the, the short answer is, is yes, that um, by taking, so your question about oxidative stress is very astute, right? So uh, one of the, uh, there was a paper that just came out not too long ago showing that a lot of these oxidative stress enzymes like catalase, superoxide dismutase, glutathione even, that these, whether it's glutathione as a compound or the enzymes, they also tend to peak at night with melatonin it's kind of like they have this team approach. So yes, I do think that uh, helping these individuals with shift who have greater risk of things like cancer, you know, you probably have seen the work on breast cancer risk being elevated in shift workers, right? So there is this hormonal distortion. So getting that balance back can be important. And I do think that, Having a good form of melatonin, you know, some people take what I call the kitchen sink approach of melatonin. They take everything they they think it's just sleep. They don't know that yeah. melatonin is for more than sleep, and it's just probably better just to have like a targeted uh, melatonin product just to deal with what you need because you don't know about interactions. You know, melatonin can be metabolized in the body, and certain things can accelerate its metabolism. So if you just have it as its isolated compound, I like, Phytomelatonin. I like a certain type of plant melatonin that's called herbatonin, and it's by Symphony Natural Health. I love it, and I work with them. I I became um, enamored with a number of their plants because they don't actually extract the melatonin from the plant. They just take it from the plant. They enable the plant to grow it in its own environment. Then they take the plant cell matrix. So not only do you have melatonin, you also have beta carotene, chlorophyll, lutein for the eye, zeaxanthin for the eye, you know, small amounts, but still you have the whole plant complex, not just melatonin from the plant. And there was a study that showed head to head synthetic melatonin versus herbitonin and seeing that anti-inflammatory activity was increased by 646%. In the herbatonin, like significantly free radical scavenging up to 470%, like really phenomenal effects of the plant melatonin. So, what this tells me is that nature works as a symphony, right? It's not just the melatonin in the plant, but what else occurred in the plant itself, melatonin, that is potentiating its effects. I think when humans get involved and they start isolating, synthesizing, you know, using all of these, ca- I mean, sometimes we do have to do that. I mean, that's just how to get certain things out of plants, but my preference, because I love plants so much is if you can take it and have the embodiment of the cell matrix, like all those other, it's not like you're eating the plant. It's like, you know, I've even like just taken it out and just sprinkled it because it just tastes like a green powder it's, it's like, you can add it to anything. Right. And it's, it's such a small amount too. So the that would be source, my preference. That's how we
2: would hope most of our supplements would be like whole food whole plant. Yeah.
0: yeah, Correct. So I definitely, I mean, that is my preference because it's been studied. It's been compared against synthetic melatonin, you know, just seeing its benefits and, and, you know, more is not always better. You know, just again, if you have the full complex in the plant, then you have the optimized, again, that matrix in order for it to be more, readily taken up you know and and perhaps there's even some better kinetics with absorption because it is in that plant matrix so that's yeah, that when people sense. ask me that would be my preference mm. great awesome thank you so much for
1: sharing that i'm glad you shared the product too i definitely want to check that out i know you have a busy day ahead so we're going to wrap things up. For everyone listening, definitely check out the show notes for today's episode. We'll put all of Dr. Diana Minnick's resources in there so you can go follow all of her amazing work. Um, and before we let you run, if you can share maybe one final piece of advice for everyone listening today to optimize their health.
0: Stay close to plants. Plants are amazing. They're um, they our connector into nature. And when we feel like we're out of balance get into nature, connect to plants, find your way. It doesn't mean you have to be a vegan or vegetarian, just bringing in more diversity, letting that plant material inform your physiology and feeling better as a result.
1: Beautiful. Amazing.
0: Love that. Aww.
2: Thank you so, so much. I, I don't want you to leave us. I want to squeeze like six more hours out. So I hope you I know. come back and chat to. with us again. <laughs> yes. Yes, well, thank you so
1: much for spending your time with us. And thanks to everyone that tuned in today. We'll see you next time. Thank you.
2: Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.